We began a few weeks ago, or last week in particular, we started a contrast and comparison of the three major covenants. The Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of the law, and now this week we began looking at the covenant of in Jesus Christ, the new covenant. Um, and in doing this contrasting and comparing, what would you say is the most profound thing that you have noticed in this contrasting of these first two, the Abrahamic and the law? Okay, that one is unconditional and the other is conditional. What does that uh, convey to you in that, the knowledge of that, that one is conditional and one is not? Okay. Right. Okay. And when you recall what happened with the Abrahamic covenant, what was the result of the covenant that Abraham made with, with God? And how did he come in, into entering that with him? Okay, first of all, he simply observed as God did it, which again shows us the unconditionalness uh, of that covenant, Right. How did he come about entering? He believed God. When God told him something, he believed him. And therefore, as a result of it, the scripture says in 15.6, it was credited to him as righteousness. So what does that tell you about the Abrahamic covenant? What's the result of entering into that covenant with God? Salvation. So it's a covenant of salvation. So you might want to make a note of that. I'm going to put it up here for you. It results in salvation. And you can see that in Genesis 15, verse 6, where he said it was credited to him as righteousness. Um, When you look at the uh, covenant of the law, we saw that um, it said that if they obeyed God, what were these three things? Somebody read those out loud for us. What is God going to do under the law? What was the promise of the law? These three things. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. After this, we went, let's see, what was it? We did, um, let me look real quick here. We looked at, I got to get back to the right chapter here. Within, we, we started with Exodus 19, and we looked at that to get our foundational understanding about the promises of, of the old covenant. But then she, uh, Kay took us into Exodus 23, where it showed us about the, about the Gentiles. And he talked about the Gentiles. What was supposed to go on concerning the Gentiles when Israel went in to take their land uh, under this new covenant of the law? Okay, the people upon the land were their enemies. Why were they their enemies? Okay, that's exactly right. How long had God waited for them to repent? And did God warn the people of the land that there was a time period of distinction of when God would finally come to his end of waiting on them? What did God tell Abraham about that? 400 years. So how long was uh, Israel in captivity in Egypt before they came in to take the land from these enemies of theirs? 
400 years, 430 technically. The first 30, they weren't in captivity. So if there's a discrepancy there, the reason is, is the first 30 years, they went down under Joseph while Joseph was still alive, and he, had, he was in good favor with Pharaoh at that time. And after a period of about 30 years, they went into actual uh, servitude underneath and in hardship and, and um, enslavement because there came a new king in Egypt, and he did not know of Joseph and all these things. It's hard to believe to me that he didn't know of Joseph, but that's what the scripture tells us. So, um, all right. Um, the law then was going to be in effect until when, according to Galatians? Until the seed would come. Now, what is Galatians for us in relationship to the Abrahamic covenant? It actually gives us information. So, in the, if we didn't have other commentaries, would you say that Galatians could be equivalent to a commentary on the Old Testament uh, covenant that was made with Abraham? It really does, because almost the entire, well, almost the whole book, for that matter, makes a contrast in the book of, of Galatians that uh, salvation is by faith, not by the keeping of the law. And in doing that presentation or that um, apologetic statement of that book he takes the law and presents all the steps along the way and in doing that he gives us a commentary on what happened what transpired between God and Abraham so we see then the law was was what kind of co uh, covenant how long was it to last until the seed would come how long was the Abrahamic covenant to last forever so this is very interesting so in that particular point uh, the fact that one is forever here, I'm going to put a little clock on this so you see it. This one is forever, but this one up here was here, temporal, right? Until the seed would come. Now, one of the things that I, um, I think has been really helpful to me this time around, again, I'm learning new things each time, though, is the distinction of calling just instead of a land, a seed, and a nation, which is what I've always done before in classes past, this time I really stepped my, up my game a bit, and I went to calling him the, a seed of blessing to distinguish him from the seed of his son, who was Isaac, that was to come. Because obviously, in order to bring... Jesus, the seed of blessing, and in order to produce a nation, he had to have a biological son, right? And so we know it starts with that son, but what I don't want people to do is to confuse that when God promised a seed to Abraham, that God was speaking about his biological son that was going to be born a year later, right? The, after chapter 17, it was going to come a year later. Okay, so the seed of blessing is who? Jesus. All right. In, we know this one results in salvation. What about this particular one, the law? It, do, it does not seem to be one that can come by salvation because what are, that would result in salvation. And the reason we know this is because... All right, because the only way to receive salvation is through the unconditional grace of God. So we could also add on here, it's a covenant, uh, unconditional, and we can put in here the word grace, right? A covenant of grace. Okay, so with those distinctions made at this point, we, we've got a pretty good 
Um, let's see, did we cover everything? Oh, the only other thing I didn't mention was this, that the Abrahamic covenant was made between whom? God and Abraham. Even though the promises to Abraham were going to affect generations and nation, right? Yet the covenant itself was only made between God and one man, right? And thus it can result in what? Salvation, right? But when it, when it comes to a national covenant, is it possible for a nation to get saved by, by a mediator named Moses making a covenant with God? No. First of all, salvation is an individual thing. So it's not even a possibility. So just by that observation alone, you can draw a conclusion. This can't ever result in salvation. But we are going to next week get into um, Hebrews uh, we did eight this week. We're going to or seven and eight this week. A little bit of seven, then eight. We're going to do nine and ten next week, and we're going to dive in even deeper to look at that even more. But what we see then is that this one does not result. in salvation. Now, after this covenant was made, what was the next thing that we looked at last week? What were the people told to do once they said, yes, Lord, we will do it, right? We will do all that you have said. And then God took Moses up to a mountain and he gave him instructions for what? That he, well, he gave them the law, but he also gave them instructions to build what? The tabernacle. Now, isn't that interesting? He, after he says this, Then he says, build me a tabernacle. Do they relate? Does one relate to the other? Is it possible for them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation without a tabernacle in that day? What was the purpose of the tabernacle? What occurred at the tabernacle? sacrifices for for sin so and and in that there was this as um carrie said a minute ago that god also gave him on that mountain those 10 commandments those primary fundamental truths which are the heart of the law um so they were to keep those and in keeping that did they fulfill what was promised that they would be what is the first what is the uh third thing there that they will be can they be a holy nation without knowing the, the, what God considers right and wrong? No. So does it kind of, do you, starting to see the kind of the, the relationship to each of these parts of the bigger picture, the storyline as it unfolds, the, the difficulty I think often with a lot of scripture is, um, the or I should say the challenge, is that you don't get all of the story in one place. You never do. You don't get all of your information about salvation in one place. You don't get all your information about, um, um, you know, sp spiritual gifts or, um, baptism or in this case covenant look at how many places we've had to go to gather in and bring together our facts on the subject of of covenant 
Um, and so because of that, it's important that you and I constantly look for a way of contrasting and comparing things and looking for these threads uh, that kind of link things together for us. It's, the, it's one of the great treasures of doing inductive Bible study where you slow down, you make lists, you make your bullet points, and then you sit back and you look and you go, okay, so what does this mean? If this is true and then this happened, what does this have to do with this? How many times have you seen Kay ask us this time, what is this, how does this relate to this, right? So she's trying to, to draw you into um, analyzing and, and, you know, evaluating insights through, the, through your Bible study time, through your, your research and study, but not just to, for the sake of getting notes down on your paper, but for you to then stop and kind of sit back and, and look at the, the bigger picture and say, oh, this makes sense. God would have to give them a tabernacle if he wanted them to be a kingdom of priests. Priests of what, right, if they didn't have their tabernacle in, in the context of what we know. All right, so... Now what we want to do, let's see, did I put it in here? Okay. Let's go on then now this week. So that's our review, and that's kind of the basis upon which we did last week. So now what we want to do is we want to work on this week's homework. And I'm going to do something just a tiny bit different this week. I want to actually go day by day and try to hit everything. And the reason I'm doing this is what Kay did this week in our homework was try to, again, thread the needle and kind of loop each piece together systematically. So she took you in day one to look at one piece, and then she joined it with the next piece, which in your thinking, there should have been a linear way of thinking of what you were looking at in order for you to come to understand and relate the new covenant to these old covenants. Now, this week in particular, what she's doing for us is having us compare the new covenant to the old covenant being the law, okay? Because she took us into Hebrews in particular. All right, so, but she started us, this is interesting. She started us in Deuteronomy 30, on day one. And she said in, in um, my question to you in there is, <coughs> let me have a sip of tea here. Sorry, I had to have a drink. Okay, did God foresee the unfaithfulness of God to, in, in Israel? Did he know Israel was going to end up being unfaithful? How do you know that? Yes, he set up. Oh, yeah, there you go. Thank you. That's the one I wanted you to come to. <coughs> Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. Someone read that.
Yes, he's, he literally says, when all these things have come upon you, and then he names them both, the blessing and the curse. So that tells you that, he under, that at this point, God, right in Deuteronomy, before they've ever entered on the land, he's already telling them the curse is going to come upon you because you're not going to obey. He doesn't say it that way, but it's certainly implied that when both of these things have come. And then he says, what is he going to do for them? After they have disobeyed and the curse has come. I have some. Thank you so much. Yeah. What did he say he's going to do for them? He will then restore them from their captivity. So he's already telling them that he understands that they are going to go into captivity. Again, here we see our sovereign God and our omniscient God. That he sees the end before the beginning. Tell me if you knew your child was going to obey, how many times would you be giving your child an opportunity? You already know they're going to disobey you. You know it. But I mean, really, I mean, I just think about the patience of our God and how much he really loves us and how desperate he is for us to come into this relationship with him. And and yet he knows, because he sees the end from the beginning and he knows all these things, he has already seen the history before it's unfolded. He knows, excuse me, the abominations that they're going to commit. Do you guys remember Ezekiel? What kind of things were going on in the nation at that point when they were about to go into captivity? Yeah, big-time pagan worship, to the point that, do you remember what was on the walls on the inside of the temple itself? Remember the, the temple walls? One of the things Ezekiel talked about were the images of all these gods that they had put on the walls, like graffiti, on the inside of their temple. And can you imagine, this is our sovereign God looking down upon this, and he says to them, when these blessings and these cursings have come upon you, and when you call out to me, I will return you to the land. So he's giving them an, an understanding that he is patient and he loves them. All he wants from them is repentance. He wants their hearts to turn back to him. I just think that's an amazing insight that we get from this particular passage here. So that's in Deuteronomy 30. God knows they're going to fail. So in the... In, in the um, in the Old Covenant in Deuteronomy, we looked at that. So let's just put that up here. Deuteronomy 1, or no, 30, sorry, 30, verse 1, and then um, six, I put 6 to 10. God, I'm, I'm going to gonna do is give commentary here. God, God knew. He knew they would fail. Or sin, you could even say. And he had a plan. He had a plan. Interestingly, <coughs> he had a plan that, as usual, God doesn't quite work the way that we always think he does. Oh, I love this. You guys are too funny. Look at all these different kinds of mints. up, <laughs> Cough drops. I got a multitude of things. <laughs> well, uh, Carol Kelbell brought, brought me Fisherman's Friend. These things are fantastic, by the way. They're really strong. Anyway, you guys are good. Thank you. We're going to collectively beat that Satan down. Okay. <laughs> okay. Then he goes on in Deuteronomy 30, and he makes an interesting prophetic word. 
And what does he say he's going to do one day for them? Starting in verse 6 of Deuteronomy. Okay, so he says one day, and I'm going to put that up there, and I'm going to put a clock next to it, because I want you to understand that he's talking about a future event, and it's easy to confuse how far into the future God is actually speaking. Because it's almost like God gives them chance after chance after chance. And then finally, there's this long period of time before he begins to do the work that he's promised here. But he says, one day, what is he going to do for them? He will. How is that going to help? Yeah, because then he says... You will, you will love the Lord, then you will love the Lord. And then you will um, obey the Lord. Hey, tell me this. This is a good question. A brilliant idea I just came up with. What is the relationship's the in according to this then between obedience and and uh, love right if you say that you love but you live in obedi- in disobedience what is that you don't really love because real love obeys and this is where the distinction comes in the scriptures uh, even Jesus, I remember one of the things that we looked at in the, I think it was in uh, John, but it, uh, Jesus, ta- or maybe it was Matthew, but Jesus talked about those who stayed with him and those who walk with him, those who obey, those who love me will obey me. But he would say over and over, and he said, and those who stay, those who abide, are the ones who love me. They are my true disciples. So in here, we see this very early, that he will circumcise their heart, and the result will be that they will love him and they will obey him. Isn't that interesting? Conditional then. Um, I'm sorry, not conditional. Let me, let me take you to a verse though that I thought was really cool. He says in verse 10, Then he will prosper you abundantly if you obey him and turn to him with all your heart and all your soul. Does that remind you of a verse in the New Testament where Jesus talks about us loving him? How are we to love the Lord? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, right? And that's right. And love your neighbor as yourself. So this is very, very uh, directly links us right forward to the New Testament, doesn't it? What was God's long-term plan for his people, those who would truly love him and desire to obey him? Are you seeing God had a plan all along? He knows man, and yet he loves us. It is such amazing grace. Jeremiah 31 was the next verse that we looked at. Now, this was on day two. So this was day one. I'm going to put this up here for you. Day one. Now we're moving to day two. He's, what, he, what she did is she had us look in the beginning in Deuteronomy. She only had us look at a couple of things. Did you guys find that your homework was actually pretty short this week? It was like, whoa, that's quick. Because a lot of it was just look at this and become familiar with it. Well, you know, that's pretty tough to do unless you really are pretty, pretty intent on looking. Okay, so the first one was Deuteronomy. Now on day two, we looked at Jeremiah. What did Jeremiah teach us? 
Yeah, he said in Jeremiah 31 to 34, there will be a new covenant. I will make a new covenant. And wh what did he compare it to? Not like what? <laughs> Not like the one which they broke, right? A new covenant. How, and who is he going to make it with, by the way? Now, this is very interesting because I don't want you to miss this. Even though you and I automatically, as New Testament believers, we think the new covenant is all about us Gentiles. We just do because it's ours, right? We possessed it. But what I want you to understand is the initial covenant that God is making here, he starts out with, it is to who? The, the Jews is to the house of Israel, to the house of Judah. And so do not ever forget that this covenant that we're talking about, he's speaking that one day, this is what he is going to do for who? Is it an individual or is it a nation? It's a, going to be for a nation. Now, the tricky part is what people end up grappling with, and it's, it is a, a, a big ball of thread you have to pull apart and get it all pieced out. I think Revelation did it probably the best for us, which was where we could see the full un, unfolding plan of God and how he was going to refine and purify Israel in that last day. How, do you guys remember that part of our Revelation, those who did it? How does God do that? Okay, well, that, that's a different subject, yes. Yes, and in Zechariah, he says about them, what, what's going to happen to them? What, what, what are they going to be taken through in order to get them to this place where all Israel will be saved? That tribulation. And he says they will be refined and purified and purged. And at the end of that, do you remember how many of Israel are sa actually saved? one-third. When we concluded that, how did they get saved? Did they get saved collectively or individually? Individually. So it's interesting. There's this, this mixture where God is saying, yeah, I'm going to save them individually, but all Israel will be saved. And in other words, you can restate that in your mind as saying, all Israel who would come into salvation will be saved. All who will enter into that covenant with God will be saved and thus all Israel will be saved so I think that's one of the things because here he's saying I'm I will make a new covenant it's going to be with Israel so I'm going to put that up there as mm -hmm. right yeah, well, that's true. I hadn't thought of it that way, but yes, absolutely. That is a good point. Okay, so now tell me, according to Jeremiah 33, what did you list as the promises that were made for the new covenant that was going to come, this new covenant that he said he would make? A new covenant, right? And he says, what will he do? I will... Put my law within them, right? Writing it on the heart is, I think, a different reference, but yes. Okay, so that's in 33. I will write it. Put my law within them. 
What else will he do in that covenant? He will be there. And I like this. It's almost an emphatic statement. So I actually capitalized it. And he says, I will be their God. What did God want to be over here? He wanted to be their God under the covenant of the law. Under this new covenant that's coming, God is saying of those people who enter into this covenant, I will be their God. So what does that tell you about those who are going to enter into this covenant? They're saved. And only those who are saved are going to enter it. As opposed to this covenant, how, who entered into this one? A nation and were all of them saved? No. As a matter of fact, we have so many, so many references. I think about Hebrews 4 or 3 and 4 where it talks about how, how Israel wandered in the, in the desert and how many of them fell and why did they fall? Because of disobedience, I love that, and unbelief. They had not united what they, what they had heard with, with their faith and therefore come into salvation. So in this one, he says, I will put my law within them. I will be their God. I love, I love that this is so specific. And it lines up almost perfectly with what happened under the old covenant of the law. What he wanted, he will get. One day he will get. And verse 34 says what? They, and I love it. Did you notice the word all? They will all know me. How is it possible for everyone in a covenant to actually know God? The only way is if what? They enter into something that's personal and individual, right? has to be a personal commitment. Under this one, do you think there was a personal commitment by everyone under the law? Obviously not. That's why Israel had so many sins that were going on. He says, I will be their God. They will all know me. And that's in 34. Yes, isn't that amazing? It's, I'm trying to think of a verse that, that would, in the New Testament, that kind of correlates to that. When Jesus said that he was going to go away, he was going to leave us what? A helper. And the helper would do what for us? Bring to mind all things that Jesus had taught. That's, that's probably the best verse that I can think of at the moment in that realize so that they will all know me why because your God is going to be your personal God and he is going to bring things to mind and and you're going to have an in a personal relationship with him and therefore you will all know him and then ultimately he says in this one I, the most important one to me on this whole step here is is 34 what will he do for them so what kind of covenant is this Okay, I will forgive their iniquity. And that's also in verse 34. So those are the primary points for day two that we learned, although we did, uh, she had us look at a couple of other verses as well. But the, in totality, what she wanted us to see that this, 
that there was a promise of a new covenant. The covenant promise came all the way from the beginning, way back in Deuteronomy, while they were still on the land. He knew that they were going to fail, and he had a plan. And he said, one day I will circumcise their hearts. Then you will, uh, you will love the Lord, and you will obey the Lord. Then in Jeremiah, he says, I will make a new covenant, not like the old. So he makes a direct correlation between the two, so that you understand he's making the contrast. And, the, and then he's saying, and in that new covenant, these are the things I'm going to do, ultimately resulting in a covenant of salvation. Hold on, let me get my other color here. So let's write salvation here. A salvation covenant. That's that's it, and and how and we are going to look at that in a lot of detail next week because we're going to look at those chapters nine and ten where it talks about the law and how the law was was done. Hold on, give me half a second. I got to take care of my nose. It's getting too drippy. I sh probably should not have been here today, but I'm just trying to be mean. I'm coming again. <laughs> All right. I don't have a broken leg, so I can make it to class, right? All right. You guys just don't come too close. I'll be fine. <laughs> I don't want to get you guys sick. Okay, Jeremiah. Now, day, that was day one and day two. Now we're into day three already, so we are making good progress here, aren't we? Day three. Day one, day two, now day three. All right. Day three... we see again another prophecy follow, follow, which follows Jeremiah 31, obviously. It's Jeremiah 32. In this particular um, piece of it, like I said, it's progressive, right? He never gives all the information in one place. He just gives a little bit here and then a little bit there. So the next part of this in 32, God assured Jeremiah of two things for Israel. Because what was going on in the day of Jeremiah? Do you kind of know where Jeremiah was when he did this? Okay, he prophesied just before and during those three sieges of Judah, right? And as he's prophesying, they're about to go into this captivity. And the cool thing is, is because we've done a little bit of the kings and prophets, you guys kind of can timeline that in your brain pretty quickly. Um, so they're about to go into their captivity, and God is speaking to Jeremiah here. And what he does is he gives him them an assurance that he has a plan for them again. It's almost like uh, Jeremiah 20, is it 29, 11? I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, right? So God knows the plans that he has, and it is a plan. It's not by happenstance that these things are occurring. He says, um, God assured them of two things. Now, there really were two things going on in that Verse 30, uh, Jeremiah 32, verses 36 to 44. The, what are the two primary things, primary subjects that he's talking about there? The land and our major subject, the covenant. So there's two things he's, he's assuring him. There is you about the land. Uh, God has promised him what? Because they're going into captivity, what is he going to do? He's going to bring them back. He's going to regather them and bring them back. So two things. Let's put this up here. Jeremiah 32, 
God promises two things, two major things. I mean, he's got, there's a lot of details in it, but the two things. Number one, God will regather them to the land. That's seen in verse 37. Somebody read that. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Think about, think about the scenario. You're, you are Israel. You're about to be overtaken by Babylon. The sieges have been coming. The wars are coming. Do you guys remember just last week when we had a bomb threat in Austin? Do you remember how terrified it, it really was? It was terrifying in, in a lot of ways. Not that we were cowarding in corners but because we all trust our God, but still there's a fear factor in that, just knowing that, you know, there are bombs out there and somebody you love could accidentally pick one up, right? Matter of fact, the first day that first bombing occurred, we were in Fredericksburg and we came home and there was a package on our front step. No kidding, I took a picture. <laughs> and I, and Aisha said, honey, you can get it. <laughs> and I said, no, thanks, honey, you can do it. So we argued about that, and he took it. <laughs> but he knew, he knew we were getting a package, so it was no big deal. But, and we, we can make light of that now because it's all resolved. But here's Israel in the midst of a war where these bombardments are coming against them, these fears are coming against them, and there's Jeremiah prophesying to them, look, God is making you a promise. Number one, and he didn't go into the detail here, but when these things have, when these years of punishment are finished, right, I will regather you. I will bring you back to this land. And secondly, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. Why? Because what did they do to the first covenant according to Jeremiah 31? They broke it. They had no regard for it. <coughs> So he says, I will regather you, and I will make a new covenant with them, and it's going to be an everlasting, did you notice that? An everlasting covenant. How is that different now? Is that quite significant to the old covenant that we just looked at back here, where it's temporal? So we have now a promise of something that's coming that's going to be an everlasting covenant, for in this new covenant that we're approaching in our conversation here. We're inching our way forward to seeing exactly what this new covenant is about. Okay. Tell me some of the details that you saw in Ezekiel 31 and 32. Go back to 31, because I thought this was very interesting. Not only is he going to bring them back and regather them to the land, but God got real specific um, about how certain it, it was that he was going to do this and about some of the details of it. Tell me some of the things that you saw in there about what God's going to do when he does this for Israel. What did it say in there? In 31 and 32, the two chapters that you looked at there in, in day two and three, <laughs> yeah, Jeremiah 31 and 32. Okay. 
Okay, so he's going to make them to dwell safely in the land. Okay, this is very interesting. Tell me about Israel today. Would you say that Israel is dwelling in safety in their land yet? No, <laughs> not really. Is he beginning to regather them, however? Has there ever been a time in history when he did regather them? Okay, 1948 is when he was the major one, right, for, the, for our recent history. But what about after the days of Babylon? Was there a regathering of them into the land? Yeah. There you go. That's right. Right. So this is what I want you guys to do, is to start really analyzing this. Okay, he's going to regather them. He's going to put them on their land, and they're going to dwell in safety. Now, has he regathered them? Yeah, a lot of times. He regathered them after the days of Babylon, but only a portion of them returned. Um, and then in 70 AD, what happened after that? In 70 AD, what happened to Israel after that day? The temple fell and... Israel was, again, dispersed all over the land. When he says he's going to make an everlasting covenant with them, um, look at 3140. What does it say there? This talking about a city. What city is that? Jerusalem. Very good, Sarah. She's guessing, but you are dead on right. He's speaking about Jerusalem. And what's God going to do for Jerusalem one day? Right. He's going to rebuild the city for the Lord. That's in verse 38. And then, and then in verse 40, he says, and the city will be what? Oh, and never, ever again, and how long? Forever. Okay. In 70 AD, what happened? They got plucked up and, and removed from the land. So has it been fulfilled yet? Has this promise to Israel, the nation, been fulfilled yet? Based on just those two points. They're not living securely in their land. And did they stay on their land forever? No, they did not stay on their land forever. They're beginning to come back onto their land. Are all the Jews back on their land at this point? Not yet. They're getting better, getting closer. But they're not all there yet. All right, so he says in the, I'm just going to read down my list. He says, concerning the regathering, it's with the nation of Israel. He said, I will gather them and bring them back to this place to dwell in safe, safety. I will faithfully plant them. Now, that was an interesting word. The idea of planting had to do with an assurance and a security that, that was permanent in its, in its quality. Um, and then the city will be rebuilt and the city will be holy to the Lord. This is also seen in Ezekiel 36, 28, if you want to look at that. And then how certain is it? Look back at Jeremiah 31. I want to read these verses. Somebody read 36 and 37 of Jeremiah 31. <coughs> how certain can we be that God is going to do this for Israel? Those words are, are just, to me, so profoundly stark in comparison to the surety of things. When you think about the sun, the moon, and the stars and their order of, of, of each of the seasons and the rising and the setting of the sun, how assured are we that that's still going on? 
You'd have to be, you'd have to be totally blind and totally in denial to not say that the sun and the moon is still rising and setting as, it's a, as it is set in its fixed order and that the seasons are not coming and passing sequentially as they always have. And so if that has been going on from time immemorial, from the time of Jeremiah and, and before, actually from the creation, this fixed order that God is using as his proof text to say, as long as these things are happening, you can be absolutely rest assured so really, in an indirect way, what is the sun, the sun and the moon and these fixed orders for us concerning this promise? It's a sign of the covenant. It doesn't say that, but it's indirectly, this is actually a sign of the covenant with God. As long as the sun is rising and the moon is rising in its order, in its fixed pattern, as long as the seasons are coming and going, this is going to be my word of assurance to you that I will do this for Israel. Now, the reason I'm kind of making such a strong statement on this is there are those in our world who really believe that God is done with Israel. They really believe that. And they do not believe that these promises are going to be fulfilled for Israel. They think it's, um, they think the church has replaced Israel as, as far as this promise is concerned, and that somehow this has usurped all these promises. And therefore, they also, because we have replaced Israel, what do they lay claim to concerning all the Old Testament promises that they apply to us? All those promises of blessing that we will have the blessing of the fruit of our womb and the blessing of the planting. And it, it's not to say that God won't do all those things for us, but are those our promises under a covenant? That is not the covenant that was God made with us. Who did he make that covenant with? The Jewish nation. So these churches that are out there in our world today that you will encounter and encounter people who believe on them, they lay claim to all the promises and the privileges of Israel, the nation. They believe the nation has been substituted with us, the church. And therefore, they, when it comes to them being regathered and put back on their land and literally God doing this for them, rebuilding the city, that it will be a place of holiness unto the Lord forever, they do not believe that. And therefore, in their mind, in their personal, let's see, let me think how, how I'm going to word this, because there's a scripture that talks about, there is a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof leads to death. Does somebody know where that is? That's a Jeremiah quote, isn't it? it oh, it's a Proverbs. Okay, thank you. So there's a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof leads to death. They look at Israel as if they're, they're, they're finished, God's done with them. And therefore, when they look at this Palestinian-Israel debate that's going on, what do they tend to do? They reason it through with human reasoning. And, they, and we have... We have a lot of people in this world that really believe that God is not going to do this for Israel. And I'm here to tell you, it's not only told to us here, it's also told to us at least two other places in Ezekiel, and it's told to us also in the New Testament. In Romans, it says God's promises are irrevocable, and God will do this for Israel as he has promised. Did you guys read um, Romans 11 this week? about the tree and how we're grafted in. How many of you have ever studied that real thoroughly? 
pretty good. You need to do that. Is Yes, go make a note to yourself to go back and look at Romans 11 and see how God has made that assurance that what he has promised back here in the Old Testament is actually restated and reassured in the New. Not to mention Revelation is, is even depicting it as well. And there's a lot of places. Yes. Okay, but let me let me make one. Okay, go ahead. Right, but I do believe that quote is speaking of one nation under God has His own possession. Has that happened yet? Is right. You are seeing God do absolutely. Absolutely, little by little, we are seeing we are seeing the the time of the regathering, the the slow where it talked about the dry dead bones in Ezekiel, and it says that they will begin to put sinew or flesh back upon the bones, little by little. It's a pro- progressive thing. That's really the one that we're seeing being fulfilled right now. Is little by little, the flesh is being put back on the bones, and the land is beginning to come back to life. So there are a lot of things that have been fulfilled. But when it comes to Israel becoming one nation in one day, that's speaking of the day when God will pour out his Holy Spirit upon Israel, the nation, in that day, okay? That's uh, a Zechariah passage, and it's, uh, where else is it? Joel, maybe? I think it might be in Joel. Yes, yes, it's in chapter, it's um, Zechariah um, 11, 12, I think those two chapters together, in it, and it's through the whole thing. So you might want to make yourself a uh, note to go in and take a look at that as well, because it's very, it's very cool to see what God is going to do in that day. Okay, so let's do this. Then he says in Jeremiah 32 to re- repeat what he's saying. What are the promises he repeats here in this particular passage, starting in verse uh, 38 and 39 and 40 of Ezekiel of Je- uh, Jeremiah 32? What does he say he will? Okay, they will, they shall be, my people, I shall be their God, now does that sound familiar to the, what he wanted for Israel initially, what did he say he wanted them to be, they wanted to be, he wanted them to be God's own possession, back in uh, uh, Exodus 19. That was what he wanted from them, and they failed in it. So now he says, one day I'm going to make a new covenant. It's going to be an everlasting covenant. It's going to be a covenant of salvation. And in that covenant, uh, these people, they shall be my people, and I shall be their God. This is showing the assurance of their salvation here. And that's in verse 38 of Jeremiah uh, 32. Okay. I shall be their God. That's the first point. Then the second one, what else is on there? Wow. I will give them one heart and 
one way. Now, what does that remind you of? <coughs> what happens in covenant? What happens in covenant? Two shall become one. And what does that technically mean? What does that mean, two become one? Does He actually defines it here. They'll have one heart and one way. They'll all be on board with the same ideas and thoughts and passions, right? The passion of God will be our passion. The ways of God will be our ways. We will desire to follow God in every way. So he will give them one heart and one way. That is covenant, right? And, he, and so that one is um, verse 39. And then in the result of that then will be what in 40? What will he do? Interesting. He says he will, he will not stop from de- doing good to my people and, and they won't turn away from me. Did you see the emphatic statements in there? How long? How long will they stop doing, will he not stop doing good to his people? Never, forever and ever and ever I will do good to these people who who come under this covenant. I will never stop doing good to my people. Oh, you guys, own it. That one you can own. In this new covenant that's coming, which is a covenant of salvation, that is going to be an everlasting covenant. And in that one, he says, I will never, if you enter into this covenant, Israel, when, one day when Israel will enter into this covenant with me, I will never stop doing them good. Did he stop doing them good under the covenant of the law? Yes. Why? Because they disobeyed and failed him. They, they were not keeping his law. They were not faithful to him. Quite honestly, although all Israel at one point had said, yes, we shall obey. Yes, we will do it. Many of them did not have the heart for God. And right away from the very beginning of that storyline, as we, we read through uh, Exodus, uh, uh, Genesis, Exodus, uh, Numbers, and also in Deuteronomy, you see how many times the unfaith. Think about um, Joshua. Let's go to that one. Remember when they went into the land? God said, go into the land, uh, scout it out. I'm going to give it to you. And they came back, and what was the report of most of those spies? It's too hard for us. Yeah, we're like grasshoppers in their eyes. Um, basically, we can't do this. It was total doubt, total unbelief. Only Caleb was, was faithful to God in that. So here he says, in this covenant, I will never stop doing good to you. Those who are my people... I will never stop doing good. So I'm going to put another clock on that to show us the distinction on that one. How long will that last? Forever. I will never stop doing good to my people. And they will never turn away from me. Now, that's an interesting state. Since what what we've now determined at this point is this new covenant is a covenant of salvation. And that there are some assurances in here that anyone who enters into this one, he's never going to stop doing good for you. Because why? He's in covenant with you. Two have become one. One heart, one mind, one soul, right? You are now his own possession. And, but by the way, he says about you, what? 
That's right. He is going to put the fear of God in you, in us, and we will never turn away from him. So that could beg an interesting and controversial question. What about those people who at some point in their life have made a claim to know God and love God, walked an aisle, got baptized, whatever, but now they're walking away from God? It's a, possibly they were never in covenant. Now, could it be that they're in rebellion? Yes. How long can that rebellion last, however? <laughs> Very good. Exactly. Jesus, I mentioned it to you earlier, but one of the things that kept coming to my mind is how Jesus kept saying, those who love me stay. You know, you can have a momentary setback. We, we probably all have had those in our lives. I would say I thought I was saved as a very young girl it, it, when I was still like nine. Um, but I can tell you, I walked away. I, the only time I was in church through those years as I was growing up was when my mom took me and I was basically required to be there, right? Um, and after I married my husband, although we were married in the church, um, he and I went Christmas, Easter. I mean, we just kind of did the traditional, you know, warm the pew things, the things that were expected, right? Holiday things. But not until I got saved did God do this to my heart. He put the fear of me in his heart. Not fear as in fearfulness, but fear as in reverential fear, a reverential love for him. That kind of fear draws you to God. It draws you into relationship with him. And although you can walk away from God with that kind of thing in your heart, you can walk away from God for a, a short amount of time, but what happens pretty soon? Conviction pulls you back. At some point, you long for it. You miss it. And you know you're doing wrong. And so you turn and you come back. So those who really know me, he says, they will never turn from me. Yes. Mm -hmm. the national covenant. I know there's a mix. Okay, good. Right, because it, and there's a national covenant with Israel that we're talking about here that's going to occur one day. Has it occurred yet? No. Okay, so we're waiting for that one day when that national covenant with Israel will occur where they're going to enter into this covenant. Okay, so... <laughs> Okay, we have Israel in a cut, and it is here. This is why I wanted to go day by day on this, because it really, Susan, if you're challenged with it, somebody else in here is too, and they're just not saying, right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yes. Yes. It is not, and you're right, there's a distinction. In this new covenant that God speaks, he says, one day I'm going to make a new covenant with Israel, not like the old one. This covenant, with I, when I make with Israel, the nation, it's going to be this. I'm going to put my law upon their heart. I'm, and, and the other one he talks about, um, Ezekiel 11, let's put that on here too. That's in the same one. Ezekiel 11. What does he say in Ezekiel 11 in verse ni uh, 19? Uh, okay, I will put a new spirit in them. 
right? And then, and therefore, uh, and then he says, I will give them a heart of flesh. In Ezekiel 36, what does he say? In verse 27, I will do what? I will put my spirit. Now he's even more specific. Here he just says a new spirit. Here he says my spirit. Ah, and cause you to walk in my precepts. See, precepts is famous. Okay. Um, okay, so let me, let me get this. Uh, this is Ezekiel 36, verse 27. Okay, now, and that was in Ezekiel eleven nineteen. Now, I think I got it all. Up here, I will never stop doing good for my people, to my people, and they will never. Uh, turn from me, right? Okay, so what I'm showing you here today by going through this little by little, they will fear me always, they will never, verse 40 was the other one, okay, 39 and 40. Okay, so we are going to have to split hairs on this, and here's what you want to see is Israel, present-day Israel is still under this covenant, yes? The, under the covenant of the law. One day, Israel, the nation, is going to be a people, a collective people, a national people, but they are going to come into this covenant in the new covenant, which results in salvation. What kind of a uh, covenant is this as far as when they come into this, how, how can they come into this? We already talked about it a minute ago individually they must come into it individually and however yet there will be a day when God says of his people I am going to pour out my spirit spirit on all Israel and thus all Israel shall be saved there's going to be a day and a work a supernatural and profound thing that God is going to do and that is he is going to secure for himself what he what he said he wanted he wanted a nation of people that would be his people What is the top, top, put at the top of the board? Okay, so that's what I'm doing. But this is really cool because what you're saying, Susan, is I think why if you don't do this inductively, you miss it. The old covenant promises a new covenant. And in the old covenant, he's talking also to a national people called Israel. But how do those, how is all Israel in Romans 11 going to all be saved? How is it possible for a nation collectively to all be saved? Well, under the law, it never happened, right? So we know that, that, that it, when it's a collective kind of a relationship, it doesn't happen because there's going to be loose and wild hairs right in there that are not going to be uh, actually abiding in that relationship with God. But under the first covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, how did Abraham enter into that covenant? by faith, right? And in that one, it resulted in salvation, but it was a personal covenant. It was a forever covenant, and it was an unconditional covenant of love, not by works, correct? Okay, so what we're doing here is we're building first this foundation of understanding. How is Israel one day going to be grafted back into the roots of their own promises? 
God promised them through Abraham a seed of blessing, right? Was it only going to be to the Gentile world? No, it was actually a promise to a nation people as well. Why is that? Why is God fervently holding fast to this nation group? Do you guys remember some of our old studies like Daniel, for instance, um, or Ezekiel? When God says about in Ezekiel, he says, one day I'm going to do this for you. Why is he going to do it? There was a phrase we used. So that all the nations would know him. And one of the reasons he does what he does for Israel, though, is not for their own sake, not because they're better than others, but for his only, to vindicate his holy name. He called them out. This is what he wanted. Is he a sovereign God? Can he get what he wants? He, yes. It's, it proves to the world who he is, that he is a sovereign God. And yet, does he force individuals to come into salvation? No. Does, in the case of, of even the law, did he force anyone? They agreed to it, yes. All the people said, yes, we will. Obviously, there were some in the background going, no, not really. Right? <laughs> Obviously. Because very quickly, I mean, Moses was on the mountain for 40 days, and what did they do while he was gone? They built a golden calf. So obviously there were some naysayers in there, even though they verbally said, sure, we will. What does that tell you about the church today? Are there people who say, yes, I will, and walk an aisle and get baptized? Are they really? What is going to be the evidence that they are? Their behavior. They will have a heart for God, they, and my people will never turn from me, meaning not that they won't stumble, that there won't be some sins along the way, but that the big picture of their life is going to be wholly committed to the Lord. Well, it actually, isn't, it actually isn't a national new covenant, but he's going to work through a nation. In the new covenant, you enter into it individually. We're going to get there, but yes. Well, that's true. That's true. That's another way to look at that, too, as well, because it's actually just a fulfillment of the first. He told him he would have a nation. Has he had a nation? Technically, that part has been fulfilled. But this is interesting, the land. He was also promised a land. In uh, Genesis 15, did he give specifics of boundaries? Have they ever possessed all those boundaries? Never. Did God make a mistake? So what does that tell you? There's going to be a restoring of his people, nation, back on that land. He's going to give them all the land that he promised. And one day, they shall be his people. How? Through a new covenant, not like the old one. It's going to be a new covenant of grace, which means you enter it individually. It's going to be a new covenant that's going to last forever. It's going to be a new covenant that results in salvation. And he's saying here, he's just laying it out for them. And this is really interesting. Did they really understand it all? Probably not. Especially if you think about it, even in, the, even in our world today now, when you talk to people who are unsaved in our world today, how much of the gospel that when, you speak, when you're speaking to them, do they really comprehend? How much of it is like, right over the head? Um, you know, what is, my husband says, the lights are on and nobody's home, Right? It's like they're there, they're hearing it, but Jesus says it. He says their ears are stopped up. They're hearing but not perceiving, right? And so this, 
in this new covenant, this new covenant is, again, it's going to be a covenant that in it, he is going to put within them what? A new spirit. Whose spirit? God's spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. That's what the promise of the new covenant is. It's a promise of the Holy Spirit. Huh? Right, which will lead them. And therefore, they will not need another man to teach them, right? Because they will know him. And they will all know me. So this is really cool. It, it, it has, you have to split the hairs on your insights on these things. But this is a new covenant that one day Israel as a nation will enter in. But along the way, let's move to the next day's work, because along the way, there's going to be a t- period in time when God is going to bring in us, the church, as well. The Gentiles, because up to this point, have, have the Gentiles been included in this, this covenant with God? What did we learn? Let's see. Let me see if I can find that verse. Um, Ephesians 2, and this is on day 4. I'm going to jump a little bit. But I want to take you to day 4 so you see this. Let's go. Day 4. This is Ephesians uh, 2, 11 to 19. Okay? Where, what does it say to us in, in that passage about our relationship to Israel in that day? Yeah. Formerly, the Gentiles were separate and excluded. And I'm going to actually even add on here. They were excluded um, strangers to the covenants of promise. Now, we understand that one really well now, don't we? About the covenants of promise. Strangers to the covenants of promise. In particular, the covenant of promise to Abraham that he was going to give one day all the land, all the nation to to Israel, but also a seed of blessing, which, by the way, it's a seed of blessing, and who's going to be blessed? All nations of the earth will be blessed. Right? So all nations of the earth will be blessed. But formally, we were excluded. Okay, so that's in verse 12 of uh, Ephesians 2. And then it says, but what about now? In the new covenant, you have been brought near. How? That's right, by Christ. By the blood of Christ and by Christ doing what to the law? Abolishing the law. So we're looking at this in comparison to the law, so I'm emphasizing that part of it rather than the the blood on my note up here. We know it's the blood. But what I want you to see is, in relationship, this new covenant is going to abolish this law. And that by doing that, by abolishing this law, where they were a separate people, they were called out. What was their job as a nation during the days that they lived upon the land? What were they supposed to be doing for God? 
to be a light to the world, right? To be a light to all the nations, that the, all the world would look at them and see what a godly, holy people they were, how blessed they were by their God. And this was to do what? A draw or attract other people to want to have a relationship with God, right? So formally, though, we were excluded, but now you've been brought near by Christ abolishing the law, right? He abolished the law in verse 15 of Ephesians 2. Oh, I've already got that on there. Okay. Um, all right, so now let's go back to day, let's see, we did day three. Let's do, oh, that is day four. I should have put that over here. <laughs> uh, why did I do that? I do not know. Sorry. Okay, what we're going to do here now is we're going to run, make a run, and we're going to try to make some connections in, in these passages to the, in the New Testament. How do we then know that this new covenant is for us also? Do you think that's an important question? Yes, it, it absolutely is. And the, the easy answer is, uh, for this group, we do know. We do know that we are. But how do we know? Let's connect the dot. Let's start with Genesis 12, again, verse 3. Who's gonna, who is the promise to? This promise of the seed is to Abraham. And in, in Abraham, what? What will happen? Yeah, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that word blessed is a key word for us. It's a, it's a trigger word, Right? When you see that word that the nations are going to be blessed, who's that speaking of? Jesus, the seed of blessing, right? So you can actually put a little cross right on that when it's talking about that kind of blessing. It's not just talking about being prosperous or happy and having food and having lots of children. It's not talking about that. In this specific st statement, he's literally saying they will be blessed because it's, it's going to be the Christ that is going to come, and that blessing is going to be the blessing of eternal salvation for you. In Galatians, let's look at Galatians where you looked at this. In 3, 8, and 16, what did God say that he preached to, uh, to Abram? We're going to connect some dots here. God preached the gospel, right, to Abram. And then what was his response? He believed. Right, and that credited him as righteous, which means he was saved, right? So we're going to put that. That's also a reference to Genesis 15, 6. But it, him, he says, they, uh, let's see, this is in verse. Now, let's go to verse 16. God preached the gospel in verse, is that verse 8? I think it is. Yes? Galatians, you guys have your, your homework open for day four? When God preached the gospel to Abraham, and he believed it, that's in Galatians chapter 3. We looked at verses, I think, 7, 8, 9, maybe something like that, right? And so I think it's in verse 8. God preached the gospel to Abram, and he believed, right? Tell me what we now know, according to Galatians, the commentary for us, about who that seed is. Okay? So the seed, and by the way, the seed that was promised, I'm going to add this in, the seed promised and believed 
uh, believed in by Abram was who? Christ. Exactly. Or Jesus. Yes, you can say Jesus. Jesus. All right. Um, Romans. Move to Romans. You looked at Romans 1.16. There we see again the gospel. Since we've got the word gospel, I'm going to mark, I'm going to mark that word so you see it. We're looking at the word gospel as a link. The gospel to Abraham that was preached, right? And what does it say in Romans 1.16? What does it tell us? Okay, read the whole verse. Okay, so does God tell us through the writer in Romans that salvation is for everyone who believes? Okay, so that's your link number one. That How do you know that we get to enter into this, this particular uh, new covenant? How do you know the new covenant is for you and I also? Well, in Romans, it tells us. 1.16, it says the gospel, the gospel is for, is salvation to everyone who believes. It's kind of like you have to do this little thing. And by the way, her question to us on that particular verse was, who is the salvation to first and then second? Did you notice that? First to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. Very interesting because in saying it that way, he's making reference back to the national covenant that they had been under the law, which they failed in, and which now is going to be abolished. And he's saying in the new covenant, I will bring this nation into faith. I'm going to do so. How? Who gets to enter into this salvation? Those who believe. So let's, let's note that one, the word by faith or believing. Those who believe in the one that he believed in. Abraham was saved by believing. This one is to everyone also who believes. Okay? So the Romans connects us right there. We've already seen Galatians has connected it. The seed, the seed and the promise, and, and it, was, it was, number one, the seed, and number two, he believed it. And who was it? It was Christ. I'm going to make a cross on that so you see that. Whoops. All right. The gospel is salvation to everyone who believes. Romans. Now we looked at Romans 11. You, uh, this is back to that Romans uh, with the grafted in tree that we talked about a minute ago. Um, you know, I, somebody opened that. Um, and let's read a little bit of that. I'm not sure where you need to start and end. Who's familiar with the Romans passage? Pretty good. I know I've, I've marked on my page here verse, uh, verses 17 and 18. Uh, but I think we can go all the way down through 20 at least. Somebody read 17 to 20, if that's the first of a sentence. Say then, 
strange that they're broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Okay, so here's what I want to do. I want to show you this. We have over here, a tree with branches, right? And it talks about a, a branch being cut off in that passage, right? It's going to be cut off right here, and then a new branch is going to be grafted in. And that's us the Gentiles. And he says, but don't be arrogant about the fact that these branches were broken off. Why were these branches broken off? Because of unbelief. But you, you are grafted in how? By your faith. So you, it's by faith that you get grafted into these, into the, the root of these promises. And actually that tree technically should be over here. Sorry. Abrahamic covenant, <laughs> okay? So, but you and I are, are grafted into that tree. So that's the tree. The, the, the gifts and the promises were to Abraham and his descendants. Uh, they did not believe as Abraham did. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. These came into this new covenant with God. They did not believe and so they were cut off. Okay, that's why I drew it over here because I was thinking of the cutting off part. So they were cut off. But us, we're grafted into the promises because of our, because of our belief. So the gospel is salvation to everyone who believes in Romans 1. And in Romans 11, <coughs> 17 and 18, it says we are grafted in. Into what? Uh, in um, it says actually among the Jews, right? And have become partakers with them. And then I'm going to emphasize this by faith. So let's put that faith again market by believing by faith okay now we are grafted in among the Jews so Romans 11 goes on to further explain it it starts in one saying a very basic big principle everyone who believes in the gospel is saved period right and actually how does that relate then back to the fact that he says that the blessing will be a blessing to all the nations all nations of the earth will be blessed in him, right? So here he says that we are grafted in among the Jews and have become partakers with them by, by faith. We are grafted in by faith, verse 20. I think this one was 17, but I'm not sure. I'll put that up there. Okay. Ephesians also was another one. Tell me what you learned in Ephesians. Go over to Ephesians 3, 4 to 6, and tell me what you see there. This is on day four. Okay, so in that, Gentiles literally names them by name, the Gentiles. The Gentiles are fellow partakers of the promise. And how do we become fellow partakers? In Christ Jesus through what? 
through the gospel. All right, in verse 6. Ephesians 3 says the same thing. Basically, we're grafted in. We become partakers with him by faith. You can actually just put Ephesians 3, 4 to 6 right up here. Because although it's worded differently, it's saying the same thing. Romans and Ephesians both basically say the same, that Gentiles are grafted in through the gospel. Ephesians 2.18, I love this one because this is really an important one, I think. Let's go to Ephesians 2.18. Someone read that. Wow. I know it's short, but say it again nice and loud. Okay, so that's Jew and Gentile meaning, right? And through him, so I wrote the word Christ on here, so you know who the him is. Through Christ, Jew and Gentile, we both have access to, um, in one spirit, to the Father. Now, have you seen the mention of a spirit prior to this in the Old Testament? In the New Covenant, was there a promise of a spirit? Yes, <laughs> I will put my spirit in them and cause them to walk in, in my statutes and my principles. And he says in Ezekiel 11, I will put a new spirit in them. And in Ephesians 2, he says, through Christ, we both have our access to the Father through one spirit. We both have access uh, in one spirit. To the Father. Man, I just barely got it in here. All the way to the bottom of the board today. But at least I'm getting it written down. That's a good thing. But I just thought this was really important, you guys. I know it seems a little tedious, but later you're going to go home and look at this, this chart, and you're going to look at my chart too, where it's written a little nicer <laughs> than my messy up here. But you're going to be able to see how we are connecting us to this promise of this new covenant. How, did it, how do the Gentiles get grafted into this? And, and by the way, were we an afterthought or in the plan all along? All along. How do you know that? Tell me the verse. Uh, in you all the nations will be blessed. Okay. So now we're, we're at the end of day four. So that was fine to put that right there. It was perfect, actually. Uh, we started in Hebrews 8 in day five, right? And we're not going to write that part down because what is stated in Hebrews 8, what is it quoting? In that verse, those verses that we looked at, I think it's 9, 10, 11, 12. We looked at those, right, in, in um, Hebrews 8. What was being quoted? She asked you that question. What's being quoted here? Jeremiah. So it's all the way back here. It's quoting this. So if we wanted to, we wanted to be really technical, we would take all this and put it on the board over there. No need to, though. It's right here. It's a quote. Hebrews 8 quotes this exact promise. I will make a new covenant with Israel. I will put my law within them. I will be their God. They will all know me. I will forgive their iniquity or their sin. Okay, so when God said then, then he closes out. This is really neat because he, he closes out then the, the, after the quote in, verse, in chapter 8. He closes that chapter, verse 13, with saying what about that? When God said a new covenant, what? Yeah. When God said 
I, basically, I will make a new covenant, right? He makes the first obsolete. Wow, that's pretty cool. That's Hebrews 8.13. That's an important verse. When God said a new covenant, he makes the first obsolete. For us, that's, that's real foundational because then we see what he said in, in, in uh, Ephesians 2. Formerly, we were excluded, but now you have been brought near by, the, by, the, by the Christ. Why? Because he abolished the law. He made the first obsolete, right? The first was obsolete, abolishing the law because that's what the contrast is made. So he said... Oh my gosh, we're done early. How did we do that? All five days of homework, girls. Okay, and boys. Sorry, Don. <laughs> okay. All right, so he, he concludes then in Ephesians 2. Let's go back to Ephesians 2. We looked at 11 to 19. Look at verse 15 then. What is the grand conclusion of what we've looked at so far? Now, this is just laying your first bit on the new covenant, right? We're going to do more on the new covenant because there's so much more. But in Ephesians 2, what does it say? Happens because we've been brought near. What happened to the two groups of people? Yeah. Now, how does that relate to covenant? Yeah, to become one. Christ made the two groups one. <laughs> one new man, he says. One new man. And he says that in verse 15 of Ephesians 2. Wow. Talk about connecting the dots here, guys. It's just the beginning. I think we've had some really good questions. Um, are there any, any points that you want to have clarified? Because we are done early. We've got about 10 more minutes. Um, certainly, we can wrap it up if you want. But if you have questions, this would be a good day to do that on at this point. Okay. Yes. The new covenant is the new way. To make a people for himself. Very good, Susan. That's a very nice way to put that. Because, and that's why we wanted to make sure that we actually put this. Do you, can you think of any verse in scriptures in the New Testament where it talks about you and I being a kingdom of priests? Yeah. Okay, Martha. Let Martha, she's going to read it for you. Okay, go ahead, read it. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. In First Peter, there is a place where actually God makes that very specific point that if his point was that he wanted Israel to be this for himself under the law, he wanted us to be God's own possession. He wanted us to be a kingdom of priests to God. He wanted us to be a holy nation. When we go into eternity, are we going to be one nation again? Yes. We're going to be 
a kingdom of priests unto our God at that point. And Peter says, Okay, give me that. First Peter 2, 9. We are. We are. We are. Everything that's over here, we are these. In verse, we have become this. First Peter. Uh, 2, 9. Thank you. Yes, we are the first fruits of, of in that regard. We are. Yes, yes. And, you know, there, is, there are other things that God's got in play in this whole unfolding of prophetic work. All of it is to bring him glory, to show him to be the God that he actually is, to vindicate his holy name. Because we as people, even those who have tried to walk faithfully with him, look at the life of Abraham. How often did Abraham, who loved God and was a man of faith, how often did he fail God? <laughs> Multitudes. How about David? Lots of times. What about, um, who else was there? Um, I don't know, Paul or, I mean, almost any of them. They, they had times when, they, Peter denying him, you know. just it, it is just an amazing thing to me that what we see is, what God wants of us is this. Even though this was, quote, a failed covenant, first of all, one of the things that I know is, what was the purpose of the law to be in its, in its function? What was the purpose of it? To be a tutor, to lead us to Christ. And in that, it absolutely was successful because in it, in the New Testament, it lays out for us, particularly in the book of Romans, but also in Galatians and Ephesians, I mean, all these other books. It pulls in these, these proof texts that show to us we can't do it by our own effort. And that's the whole point. And that's why God said, I'm not going to, here, you're, you're going to fail. And did God know that ahead of time? So why did he let us go through that exercise of futility? What do you think was the purpose? To what? Yes, Sarah. To learn. To learn what? To see our need for God. Okay. What kind of things do you think we have learned, even as... as as we look back on history of all this, if we look back on the law, what are all the things that you think that you and I, maybe they didn't, but what have you and I learned by observing what they have gone through? What have we learned about God? First of all, he's holy and righteous, so he, he's going to judge unrighteousness. Okay? He's so forgiving. He just keeps letting them go back to their land and go back to their land and go back to their land. They never get it right. Okay, is there a lesson in that? What's the lesson? That's right. What were they not doing and what must you and I do in order to have success? Trust God. There has to be a basis, fundamental basis of faith. What did God promise us that would happen to us when he 
put his new spirit in us. I love this Ezekiel 36 one. I quote this one all the time to you guys. He's going to put what in us to help us? His spirit. Because he's going to take the, the law, which was written on stone, and he says he's going to remove our heart of stone, give us a heart of flesh, He's going to put his spirit within us and cause us to walk in his statutes and principles, not force us. There's still an exercise of the will, as a matter of fact. We see that in Ephesians also. Walk by the spirit, and then you shall not do what? Gratify the, the sins of the flesh. You will not indulge yourself to do the things that your flesh wants to do. But God will give you a spirit. And with that spirit, is there room for flaws in us? Yes. But what is the, the ever-abounding thing in it? He says for us in this covenant, I will forgive their iniquities forever. It's an eternal covenant. I will never break away from them. And I will, where was it? Um, they shall be my people. Um, I will never stop doing good to them. So you can mess up and mess up and mess up. But God is never going to turn his back on you. And because you have your, his spirit in you, if in fact you do, and I believe all of you do, since you have his spirit in you, what we'll do, Romans talks about this conviction of the spirit that comes upon us, which causes us and draws us lovingly back into right relationship with God. First John says that you are to daily, there's a, there's a reference in there that you're to confess your sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That passage is not written to unbelievers about coming into salvation. That is a passage written to believers saying that daily washing, it's not, there's a difference between the baptism of washing and the sprinkling of washing. In First John, it's the word sprinkle. And he, says, wa, he says daily confess, it's a sprinkling. He, he, it's a daily routine thing that's not the, for the cleansing of sins, but for the forgiveness of those momentary acts of sin that you will commit in your faith walk. Isn't it an amazing gift that he has given to us? And I think it's amazing as we thread the needle a little bit and kind of connect the dots. How do we get from that old covenant, the promises to Abraham, and the covenant of the law, what God wanted for himself, and what he is now going to bring about in, in fruition? First Peter kind of really is a, a very key word, uh, verse in this. I'm surprised we haven't come across that one before in a way. Because he says, you are a holy nation. That's what he wanted all along. You will be priests unto your God. You are going to be my own possession. That's who, what we are now in the new covenant. One day, he's going to bring all Israel in. Now, how that takes place, how that transpires, is a whole nother lesson. And it's, and it's a bit lengthy. But one day, it will happen because um, Romans chapter 11 absolutely assures us. I want to look at that one. We have time. Romans 11, someone flip it open. I think it's verse 27, it might be. Okay, go ahead, read it. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and thus all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion, and and then he says four keep from going the standpoint of the gospel they are enemies for your sake yeah but from the standpoint of god's choice they are beloved for the sake of the fathers 
For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Wow. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What he promised to Abraham, what he even promised to Israel, the nation under the law, God does not change his mind and God does not go back on his word. He wanted them to be his own possession and his holy nation and a, and a priest of, of uh and a uh, people of priests unto God. That's what he's going to make of you and I. And actually, we who have entered into the new covenant already, Israel has not. The nation Israel has not yet. Nation of Israel has not yet received the fullness of all their land mass, right? They have not yet been put on there. They're not a people fully committed to him yet, but you and I are. In the interim, we have been grafted in. And how will Israel later come back in and, and receive this? Through the tribulation. And then what God said is, I will graft them back in according to Romans 11. By how? Faith. By their faith. Individual faith of each one. That's right. That's at the end. That's right. Right at the end. Now, how much falls into the actual tribulation and the millennial years, I don't know. My, some of it, I think the, the giving back of the full land with those boundaries may take place just before the tribulation, and it's going to show them securely on their land, and they will be saying, peace, peace, but there really is no peace, and then God will come back and really give them peace, and he'll put them back on their land during the millennial reign. That's when the real fulfillment of it occurs is during the millennial. Yeah. Yeah. 